Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father, a faith that you've provided by grace, of course. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father, and thank you for the completed canon of Scripture, for this is what we rely on as the very bread of life. Thank you for giving us the very bread of life, the Word, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved us when we were destitute and without hope. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that earnestly desire to be here this morning but cannot for reasons of illness or what have you. We want them to know that we love them, we miss them, and that your will be done, that they return to us as soon as possible. Father, we also pray for those that are still lost in this world. And we are grateful for your patience with that situation and that we pray also we be granted an opportunity to evangelize them so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make a morning like this even a reality for all of us to enjoy. Thank you for the fellowship. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance and who gets to define it? Part 23. On Thursday, we were reminded of a very important principle, something that's been in our studies for years now, something that the Spirit's been developing in various formats in our souls. Obviously, it's this. Perspective is everything. I've said this many times in the past. One of the great things about perspective is that it can change in a moment's time. You can be having a great day and it can go south in a moment's time. You can be having a terrible day, uh, a struggle, if you will, and everything can turn around with one scripture, one uh, thing to think about from God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So perspective is everything, and that's what we've been after as students, uh, as disciples of Christ. Uh, for example, up here on the board, one of the perspectives that gives us something to, gives us a purpose each and every day is that we are to learn to live in the now. Learn to live in the now. Um, one of the facts that the Bible gives us is that only God knows how many days we have on this earth. Only he knows. And so what does that leave us? It leaves us sort of, not remiss, but appropriately postured that we could be taken out today. Christ could return today. And all this is over. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with the, right, the righteous perspective, which is we ought to live in Christ's imminent return or with the knowledge of the simple fact that we don't know how long we're going to be here. It leaves us with this idea of learning to live in the now. And we looked at various uh, scripture there. Psalm 139, 16, Job 14, 5, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2. Up here on the board, I'll give you Psalm 139, 16 again. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And that's just... The word telling us that before any of us were even born, God knew the number of days that we would each live. We don't know, but He knows. And He doesn't tell us for a reason because He wants us to focus on the now. He wants, to live a, he wants us to live in that divinely ordained perspective. I call it living in the gospel reality, living for the Great Commission, realizing why we've been left here on earth. And that's why we pray the way we pray. Give us some time. Thank you, Lord, for the time to evangelize other individuals. Uh, maybe they're loved ones. Maybe they're people we don't know. But that's not the point. The point is that in humility, as we'll see again this morning, we ought to live for others. And we ought to recognize this great purpose that has been put on each of our lives. The Spirit also gave us the following to think about on that topic of learning to live in the now. 
The more we begin to live in the gospel, sharing it, living for others even, the more we realize why each day is precious to God. Again, the more we begin to live in the gospel, sharing it, living for others even, the more we realize why each day is precious to God. You may not realize that, and I think this is one of the tremendous things that we learn as we continue to study the Bible, is that we each have a purpose here, and it's God's purpose. And there are basic primitives that we get to turn to, like Luke 19.10, Matthew 28.18-20, 1 Timothy 2.4. I'll give you sort of the uh, highlight reel of those up here on the board. Luke 19.10 speaks, For the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save. That was Jesus' purpose in a nutshell. The Son of Man, the Son of God also, Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save. And that was a, the basic primitive of His ministry. Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Well, that's the basic principle of our ministry. And who's our prototype? Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save. And then, of course, from God's perspective, we have 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved. Any questions? I mean, this is why we're here, people. This is our great purpose. It's not to get a bigger car. It's not to make more friends. It's not to succeed by world standards. The Bible even says if you're a friend of the world... You're an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. So we're not supposed to affiliate ourselves, especially in the spiritual sense, with a world that's in utter decay, that has absolutely no regard for Jesus Christ or the sovereign God of the universe. We're not supposed to uh, fellowship, says the Bible. For what fellowship is that? Lightness with Belial. And so these are the primitives that we get to turn to, and we realize that this is what it means to live in the now. To understand, first and foremost, we have a purpose here. And it's not what the world gives us as a purpose. It's not what you learn in grade school. It's not what you learn in college. It's not what you learn from your parents even necessarily, unless they're teaching you truth. There are basic primitives that we're to live by that set us free because they give us a real purpose. And the burden is no longer for you to achieve, but the burden is on God. And I love that, don't you? Cast all your anxiety on who? Yourself? Your own shoulders? No. Cast all your anxiety on who? God, the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. And He has broad shoulders and you don't. So this perspective that the Spirit's been evolving in us is actually easier to understand than any other alternative. This perspective is easier to understand than any other perspective. What's my purpose? We just learned it. What are the primitives? We just saw them. That's easy. It only becomes difficult when we start listening to the world. Oh, no, 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 no. You got to be a self-made man, you see. You have to be a self-made woman, you see. You have to get on this little treadmill called life. You have to get into the rat race. You have to boom, boom, boom. And don't think that this stuff doesn't permeate churches because it does. We call it religion. You have to do this. You have to do that. And you're running around with a chicken with your head cut off. And you don't understand why you're all stressed out. And the Bible and, and Jesus Christ said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That don't sound like rest to me. If you're all wigged out every day and you're stressed out because of whatever, something's missing. You missed your purpose. You, you, maybe you think that your purpose is to succeed in this world, and that's the great lie, especially in America. I hate to be picking on America so soon, so early in this service. I love, I mean, I, look, I served my country, right? It's not like I don't love America. I just don't. <laughs> Does that make sense? Do you, know, do you know what I'm getting at? I mean, I do and I don't. I understand that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fortification around us. It allows us this morning even. It allows us freedom to, to speak the truth about our Lord and Savior. That I love. And that's what I fought for. 
but the people are getting worse and worse. It's horrible, and that I don't love. So anyways, I'll give you an analogy. Again, this perspective that the Spirit's been evolving in us is actually easier to understand than any other alternative. Here's the analogy, and forgive me, it's not perfect. A man goes into his workshop and makes a new wooden toy for his five-year-old son. On his birthday, the son receives the toy from his father. He's really excited because he loves to play outside, and by the looks of it, the new toy is sturdy enough to withstand some pretty solid roughhousing. He hugs his father and races outside to the dirt pile, where a few of his plastic army men are toppled over and strewn about from the day before. He sees that his new toy is a vehicle having a steering wheel and seats for his army troops on the inside. So he piles on a bunch of plastic figurines and begins making motor noises as he transports troops across enemy lines. His father comes out about 30 minutes later and asks his son how he likes his new toy. The boy says, I like it a lot, Dad, but it's really hard to push on the dirt because I think you forgot to put wheels on it. His father responds, that's because it's a Navy patrol boat, the kind the U.S. used to use to transport troops, say, in Vietnam, etc. I promise you, son, while it may not drive on dirt very well, it floats exceptionally well. The son felt a sense of relief wash over him. Once his perspective on the vehicle had changed, everything about his playtime became easier. Everything made more sense. So the father-son team took the boat over to the koi pond and floated it around with some troops inside. Slowly, the little boy began to re-immerse himself into his pretend war, and his father just smiled as he watched his son enjoy his new toy the correct way with a new perspective. The end. Now, that may be a long way of explaining such a simple topic, but I hope you get the point. The moral of the story and the point of the spirit, this point the Spirit's making with us at the start of our class even, as of late, is up here on the board. On the idea of perspective, godly perspective is actually easier to understand than any other alternative. That's the beauty of the Word of God. Do you see it? It's only complicated. How many times have I said this? As a shepherd, my job is only difficult because you come here with baggage, with misappropriated scripture even, sort of mangled into and stuffed into, you know, round pegs into square holes because that's what you wanted it to say. And, you know, spiritual life has been complicated and difficult for a while because you've missed the godly perspective, and that's what the Spirit's been trying to give us. So godly perspective is actually easier to understand than any other alternative. Our God is not, quote, not a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14, who overcomplicates spiritual matters. Contrarily, the kingdom of darkness specializes in complexity, beginning with a different gospel, 2 Corinthians 11, 4. Let me read it again. This is the perspective. Godly perspective is actually easier to understand than any other alternative. I know this from Holy Scripture, and I know this from experience. And some of you will attest the same. The more you understand what God wants us to be, who He wants us to be uh, in this world, the easier life becomes. The easier everything falls into place. And it's just a perspective change. It's like the little boy. He's trying to push the, a boat through the dirt, saying, you know, it's great for holding troops, but it's really hard to push. Well, put it on the water. That's you. Get on the water. Maybe you're a boat. Get on the water. Let the Spirit fill your sails. That's what it means anyways, Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. Pleroo, do you remember that? It's just like the Spirit's filling your sails, and He guides you across the water. And it's a smooth ride. Unless you're trying to push it through the dirt. Unless your perspective is wrong. Unless you're what I would call disjointed, as I said even in this last week's blog. Unless you're disjointed from the body itself. 
Unless you're trying to be something. Case in point, exercise a spiritual gift that's not even yours, maybe. I don't know. But there's a lot of people out there pushing boats through dirt. And they're wondering why they're sweating the spiritual life. So godly perspective is actually easier to understand than any other alternative. Our God is not a God of confusion who overcomplicates spiritual matters. Contrarily, the kingdom of darkness specializes in complexity, beginning with a different gospel. As we've been learning, once you have the true gospel of Jesus Christ down pat, reading the Bible is no longer a chore. I remember years ago saying, man, this is kind of tough. Like I'd pick up my Bible and say, why is it difficult? Why can't I just read my Bible and not come away confused? Because my perspective is wrong. That's why. And that was even after I was a dedicated student of the Word of God. That happened for a while. I said, why is this not making sense? Why do I feel like I have to be a Ph.D. in theology just to get past this chapter in this book in the New Testament, let's say? It's because my perspective was wrong. So as we've been learning, once you have the true gospel of Jesus Christ down pat, reading the Bible is no longer a chore, but rather a joy set before you. Something that is not only refreshing, but forever inviting. Like this morning, I was up at, I don't know, 6, 5, 6 o'clock, something like that, and I, I, I was reading the Bible. And it was awesome. I was like looking forward to it. I said, oh, I can't wait. I'll make my coffee. I'm going to sit down in my recliner, and you know, the rest of the house was still asleep, and I just enjoyed the Word of God. And it was beautiful, and it was very inviting and refreshing. So once you have these things down pat, Jesus' words begin to jump off the pages with a whole new vividness. And every, everything just seems to simply fall into place. It's like the little boy who was struggling to push a patrol boat through a dirt pile. And once he was taught about its true purpose, he was able to enjoy the seamless elegance of it floating across the water. Up here in the board, more perspective from the Spirit. There's a huge difference between a person who's misappropriating their time on earth and someone who has found their calling in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quote, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. John 8.32 There's a huge difference between a person who's misappropriating their time on earth and someone who has found their calling in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's living the gospel reality that understands their purpose because they have the right perspective on things. This is why we have such an affinity, let's say, for what we've been calling plainly stated doctrine. For example, go to Philippians 2.3. Philippians 2, verse 3. This is why we have such an affinity for plainly stated doctrine. To me, there's few things sweeter than being able to open up my Bible and reading something that's just there. And it's unavoidable, even though it might be offensive to my natural or fleshly sensibilities, it's there, and I cannot avoid the truth of it. So I might be even a little bit taken back at first, but I like it. I actually prefer that, because I understand that to be love and true grace. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Any questions? Is there any way to wiggle out of that? I don't see it. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Up here on the board, I gave you this uh, last time on the statement regard one another as more important than yourselves uh, John, Pastor John MacArthur who I enjoy, I actually listened to him a little bit this morning as well, which I do once in a while, not often, but once in a while the basic definition of true humility, he calls this the basic definition of true humility regard one another as more important than yourselves so the litmus test is, and I agree with him 
The litmus test for humility is not, oh, shucks, you know, toe in the sand. It's, am I actually living for others? Do I actually regard others as more important than myself? That's the litmus test for humility. Because if you don't pass it, then you're living for yourself more than others, which, as the Bible says, is arrogant. The most humble person ever to walk the earth died for us, Jesus Christ. And again, he's our prototype in every sense of the word, especially for humility. Up here on the board, Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, what? Serve one another. Serve one another. That's what true humility is. That's what it looks like. That's what the fruit of humility looks like. That you serve through love, you serve one another. And as Jesus would say, the greatest among you shall be the what? Ser the servant. <laughs> Not the one that's being served. What we might conclude once again uh, from our studies is this up here on the board. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. So in other words, wait a minute. So there's a connective tissue in the Bible? Yes, there is. You're humble. You begin living for others. And you're ready for this? It's unbelievable. It all works out. It's more blessed to give than to receive. All of a sudden, that becomes full in your life. All of a sudden, you realize that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. But you've got to be humble in the first place to ever recognize the blessings that come on the other side of said humility. And that's all Jesus was saying. That's all he meant when he says more blessed to give than to receive. Lay down your life. What's the greatest thing you can give? Greater love is no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends, right? Okay, that was Jesus too. Lay down your life for others, and you're going to be blessed. That's the connective tissue. Be humble. Receive grace. God gives grace to the who? Oh, my word. You mean all these verses add up, and they're simple, and they all go like this? Yep. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, right? Why, why are you guys all complicated for so many years? <laughs> why are you all like, on a Sunday morning, oh, man, life's got me. <laughs> the easiest litmus test is who you're living for. Are you stressed out? Seriously, are you stressed out at all? Does life have you, you know, through the nose? Who are you living for? That's how you'll know. Who are you trying to impress? Your job? Your family? Your friends? What about those things? Who are they for? Are they for you? Are they for others? Because nowhere in the Bible does it say that just because you have a certain job, that you're going to be happy. You may or may not be. Like Paul said, I've learned to go with and without. And in all circumstances, I've learned to be content. How's that happen? Because Paul was humble. Because he was living for others. He said, Lord, if this is where you want me, this is where I'll be. He's also the one who wrote, remain in the condition in which you were called. Slave, free man, doesn't matter. We're here to live as under the Lord. That's the perspective that he's trying to impart to us. And when we receive it in humility, all of a sudden, everything kind of goes like this. And all those anxieties and those stresses, you just say, Lord, these are yours, man. These are yours. And all of a sudden, you have peace. Oh, didn't he say that too? Peace I give to you, my peace I give. My peace I give to you. Didn't he say that too? Oh, man, you mean it all adds up? Unbelievable. I guess Jesus being God never lied. But what's our problem then? We treat him as if he's a liar. We treat him as if his promises aren't real. We go upon our lives as if this is a nice to have. Right? Like there's a bunch of 
punchlines in the book of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom books. I mean, oh, whoa, whoa. Let's put that one on a poster. Right? <gasps> Proverbs 4, 5. 5, 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Include your ear to my understanding. Let's go home. <laughs> this is not a punchline. This is the real deal. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. However, as we know, humility doesn't always dominate the churches with the crosses on their roofs, does it? Now, that's the hard discussion, is it? You guys are like, oh, this is so great. Sunday morning, everybody's like, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, man, here we go. Listen, I didn't pick this fight. But whether you like it or not, we are in the greatest bloodbath of all time. Spiritual warfare outtrumps any other form of warfare. And we're dead set in the middle of it. And we have been enlisted as soldiers for Christ. We are ambassadors. We're not of this world. Our citizenship is not of this world. It's of heaven. So humility doesn't always dominate the churches with crosses on their roofs, does it? For example, the biggest issue I see is the most fundamental of all up here on the board. There's false humility in churches. There's probably a bazillion churches this morning that are teaching something completely different than what I'm trying to teach you. Like, not just, they're not teaching this topic, they're teaching this topic as a lie. They're not teaching the truth. They're saying that humility is something else. Not what the Bible says. Some aw shucks thing. Oh, golly gee thing. This idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is completely foreign in today's falsely professing Christian up here on the board. Humility like grace. And just remember, if I'm going too fast for you to write down verses and stuff, everything is on the website. This whole, every slide is on the website. So, Humility like grace, mercy, love, etc., has been perverted into something that isn't in the Bible. As we've been learning, Satan and the kingdom of darkness love to upset, to undermine the gospel by changing fundamental definitions. In fact, I can get you to think this way about, say, grace or even humility. I've got you. So ask yourselves, how many so-called Christians are actively living for others right now? And I'm not saying you have to, you know, be out there every day with a shopping cart and Bibles and, you know, uh, $10 bills and, you know, standing on street corners on a milk crate preaching the gospel. This is a very personal question for you. It's between you and the Lord. It's not for me to judge. But it is a fair question. How many so-called, quote, Christians are actively living for others right now? Again, I don't mean flipping a $20 bill on occasion to someone in need. I mean actively pursuing a life of regarding others as more important than themselves, a la Philippians 2, 3-4. How many so-called Christians are doing that? How many are at least motivated because remember, God sees the heart. You might be motivated and you're confused. You're motivated, but you're hung up, you're, you're ill. You're motivated, but you're still confused about how. He hasn't matured you yet enough. But you're motivated. I'm talking about motivated. And don't play that game. I'm totally motivated. Uh, dude, you've been motivated for 50 years, but you still haven't done anything? <laughs> Maybe we got to get to the definition of motivation then. How many are simply living a lie? Like, or let's say, a lie that is fed like a caged animal. A lie that subsists on an occasional feeding of false humility, but then is pranced around on parade days as if the real thing. How many people are doing that? I mean, there are parades going on right now, right? 
8, 10, and noon. That's when the services are. There's a parade. Everybody gets dressed up, and they parade from their cars in their Sunday best, and they go hear a bunch of lies, and they don't care, and then they parade back after a donut and a coffee, of course, and some small talk about Jesus. And then they go back to their disgusting lives, and they pretend that's what I mean by the parade. How many people are living in humility? How is that living for anyone else other than self? If you're on parade, you're not living for others. There are a lot of people who dress up a poodle like a lion and walk in their little parades as if God is fooled. You see, so many so-called Christians just want to be part of the parade. But they aren't interested in an intimate relationship with the band director. To them, Jesus is a punchline. Jesus is a punchline, a quip thrown out whenever someone asks them if they are religious or not. Are you religious? Do you believe in Jesus? I do. I do. Jesus. See? See my earrings? See my necklace? See my tat? That doesn't mean anything. Jesus to them is a punchline. Or maybe a retort to a condescending elder in their family who may or may not be, quote, devout in their own religion. Up here on the board. That's false humility. That's what the Spirit's been ferreting out in our lessons. I know it's difficult. I know it's not, you know, Sunday morning kumbaya. But this is, battle's ugly. This is probably like being, if the battlefield were over there and we we're over here just talking about how to prepare to go back into battle, the intensity of what I'm speaking about right now is probably 100 miles from the front line. But you can still hear it and you can still get the reports of what's going on. In other words, this is very easy going, even though sometimes you expect more on a Sunday morning in terms of uplifting. Most people have very little respect for Jesus. That I am convinced of. They treat him like a poor little sap that is pining over them like a love-stricken fool. Yet, did we forget, Todd and Deacon Johnson and I were talking about this before class, have we forgotten that he's the sovereign of the universe? Honestly, have we forgotten that Jesus is God? The, the, the sovereign of the universe? The one that demands respect in every way? He's not pining over anyone. He's the sovereign God of the universe. Do we not fear God anymore? Is Christianity so disgusting now, so-called Christianity, that we don't even fear God anymore? That we talk back to him like a bratty little adolescent and say, hey, 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 the gate, it's too narrow. My little uh, sweet little thing of a daughter over here, I know she doesn't want Jesus. I need to squeeze her in, so you need to broaden it up a little bit. What in the world? For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what grace and mercy looks like. We ought to be forever grateful that a, a gate was even opened. Amen? But that's not Christianity, is it? Christianity is always complaining about how narrow the gate is nowadays and how accommodating God should be because God is all loving, right? Forget about His sovereignty. Forget about His own integrity. Forget about His justice. People have very little respect for Jesus. They treat him like a poor little sap that is pining over them like a love-stricken fool, yet he is the sovereign God of the universe who demands respect in every way. People like this like to have ready-made answers whenever they are put on the spot. So they say things like, oh yes, I'm a member of this or that church. I'm a member. So, what does that mean? You're a member. 
but it's really just so they can pass muster in some social situation to relieve pressure, so to speak. As with all acts of arrogance, it's about them, not Jesus. Again, the point of the board, most people have very little respect for Jesus. They treat him like a poor little sap that is pining over them like a love-stricken fool, yet he is the sovereign God of the universe who demands respect in every way. I think we've forgotten. Not us, but so-called Christianity. In fact, there are very identifiable fruits, as the Spirit's been teaching us up here on the board, on this idea of false humility. Humility for most so-called, quote, Christians nowadays is a self-serving emotion. Its hallmark is a trumpeting of its so-called good thoughts and actions. It is evil because its motivation is selfish, not selfless. Philippians 2, 3 to 4, regard one another is more important than yourselves. That's what false humility looks like. It's a self-serving emotion. It's about them. It's not about Jesus. They have no respect for Jesus. They respect themselves more than Jesus. But they want your respect, right? Like Paul said, what am I going to do? I'm living for man now? This is why I preach the gospel? To impress you? Come on. That was Paul, right? I'm not living for man. I'm not looking for your approval. My approval comes from him. But see, fleshly man wants approval from other fleshly men. That's how the economy works. It's called creature credit. Up here on the board, if the whole reason you're supposedly, quote, living for others is so that you can tell the world about it, you are missing the point. In fact, that's not true humility at all, rather false humility, arrogance cloaked in a thin veil of something that looks like humility. Yeah. And you know what? The sovereign God of the universe, you know, the one that became man, you know, Jesus, the Messiah, you know, that guy, the one nobody wants to talk about anybody anymore, that guy, he had no tolerance for this kind of ridiculousness. None. The audacity, right? Why do you think the, the Pharisees and the scribes and them, they hated him? Because he said, I'm, I'm God. I am the father of one. I'm telling you, you're, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're dead inside. You're nothing more than a facade. And they hated him for it because they were the ones in the high seats, right? In the high places in their society. They were the ruling class. And here's Jesus from Bethlehem, right? Some no place. And he's telling them, oh, no. No. Every knee shall bow. To me. And they killed him. They killed him. Go to Matthew 6.1. Why? Because he had no tolerance and he had no problem telling people you're out of line. Just like we shouldn't have any problem telling people you are out of line. That is not my Lord you're talking about. You're talking about a different God. It's a little G. That's not Jesus Christ from the Bible. That's another Jesus of another gospel. End of story. The sovereign God of the universe rules Almighty, perfect, immutable. Matthew 6, 1. But back to the point. Sorry, I had a little outburst there. <laughs> Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. You see what God thinks about that? What does God think about trumpeting your own, blowing your own trumpet? Nothing. He goes, that's garbage. What are, you, what are we doing here? Is this a game? Oh, oh, I didn't realize we were on a parade. Hey, God, get in the back. Come on, you can play the tuba. <laughs> Seriously? No tolerance. Again, to our previous point, the Spirit is addressing a dire situation in the churches today. Up here on the board, false humility in the churches. The idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is completely foreign to today's falsely professing professing Christian, and again, neither Jesus nor his wonderful pupil Paul had any tolerance for humility. Now this is where the Spirit began weaving our three key running principles together, humility, mercy, and repentance, and we're drawing upon our last, our previous lessons, so just bear with me if you haven't heard them. Um, we've heard an awful lot about humility as of late. Before that, we heard about mercy for a bit. 
And of course, the primary, our primary course of study has been repentance. What is repentance and who gets to define it? And so these three key topics, humility, mercy, and repentance, have been coming together in our lessons. And the Spirit's just been giving it due diligence so that you understand how these things come together. So let's synthesize three key verses from our studies up here on the board. Humility, mercy, and repentance. Philippians 2.3, we just saw. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Perfect place to start when you're talking about humility. Perfect litmus test that we can all take on the topic of humility. Romans 9.18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires. Perfect place to start. God's not under any delusion that man is under, that he has to accommodate man's sensibilities. Well, I don't think you're merciful enough. And what does he say in Romans 9? Who are you, O man? I'm the potter, you're the clay. I made you, remember? Who are you to question me? Mercy is his to give as well as his to define. And then, of course, Luke 15, 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Hmm. Think of the primitives. Jesus Christ himself came to seek and to save. God wants all to be saved. Of course, there's going to be rejoicing in heaven. Over what? One sinner who what? Repents. Even repentance has become a dirty word. Nowadays, somehow repentance has been removed from the gospel conversation. How's that work? I told you how it works. We've studied it many times. Keep the self-life. Here's a free ticket to heaven. You can have both. No, that's not the narrow gate. That's not what Jesus said at all. Not even close. But then my little precious little Twinkie of a girl can slip in the side of the gate because we just widened it a little bit. You know? Yeah, but... Jesus Christ is the sovereign God of the universe. He says, no, I don't have any tolerance for that. We're not going to pretend. We're not going to fake. You, that's, you might as well have a millstone around your neck. A cursed Maranatha. You start teaching a false gospel that broadens the way that leads to life, that contradicts the sovereign God of the universe who became man and taught us his gospel. You start doing that, you're accursed. Rightfully so. So what is it that we can say about the connective tissue that exists between these three topics, humility, mercy, repentance? Well, for starters, as the Spirit's been impressing upon us up here on the board, a humble person repents and receives mercy. Obviously, I'm doing tongue-in-cheek here. Was that too simple? May it never be. All right, let me say it again then. A humble person repents and receives mercy. Ta-da! Is that like rocket science? Do you have to be like a PhD in theology to understand that principle? Because that's actually what's on the pages of the book in front of you. It really is that simple. A humble person repents and receives mercy because God gives grace to the humble, but is opposed to the proud. That's the whole point. God's salvation is really that simple. The sovereign God of the universe found a way within his own integrity to reconcile estranged sinners to himself. All right. Thank God he did all the work, right? The sovereign God of the universe found a way to reconcile estranged sinners to himself and maintain his own integrity along the way. He became man and died to be the way, the truth, and the life. And he described that way as the narrow gate that leads to life. He said, I'm the gate. So he says, right? I am the gate. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets a father but through me. Is that not gracious enough? Is that not merciful enough? Is that not a greater enough show of what true humility looks like for you, O clay? Nope, it's not. I'm going to church down the street because this is too narrow. I just want to be fed lies so I can feel good, so I can lie to the rest of my family and friends. 
Nothing about saving us was easy for Jesus Christ, who also warned those who'd follow him that their own decision involved a denial of self and a carrying of a cross of their own. What do you think he was saying? He said, you're going to have to count the cost. Nobody builds anything without counting the cost first. You're going to have to deny yourself. My spirit will help you, but you have to be willing. You cannot hold on to the self-life and have me. The self-life, you see, doesn't fit. It's too bloated to fit through the narrow gate. Do you see the vision? It doesn't fit. And that was like the rich young ruler. Jesus Christ just said, basically, let go and you can come in. It was like, you ever see a dog on like YouTube? And the owners are so cruel. They give their dog like an eight-foot branch, and they say, come on, run up the stairs. And they run directly, you know, things going this way, and they go like bump into the... Nobody's seen this? Right? That's the rich young ruler, the one who won't let go. He's got an eight-foot branch, but the gate is only six-foot wide. And he go, then he backs up even further, and he runs full blast. Boom, boom. Then he drops it and paces around like the dog would. <laughs> then turns like a bull. And he rams into the gate and drops dead, trying. Do you know what I'm saying? That's all Jesus was saying. You've got to let it go. If you don't let it go, you can't come in. You cannot have both. Why is that so hard for people? Why is it offensive to people? You know exactly why it's offensive to people. Because the flesh doesn't want to give up the self-life. It's that simple. And there are churches, churches upon churches this very Sunday that are teaching you don't have to. You can actually get right through the gate and drag the self-life with you and never be changed. And they call that grace and mercy. Because God loves you so much. He's going to widen the gate for your eight-foot stick. Just for you. Those are the lies. Those are the perversions, you see. Those are the underlying definitions that if you can get people to accept those lies, then the gospel follows suit because the gospel is built on those lies. Only it becomes a little G gospel instead of the capital G. Up here on the board... Simplicity ought never be misconstrued as easy. That is another lie. The cost is very high and the gate is narrow that leads to life. While God saves by grace, there are absolute constraints. But man doesn't like constraints, does he? It's like the adolescent. What's the problem with an adolescent? They don't like mommy and daddy's rules, right? So they constantly buck in the rules. Same thing. That's the flesh. The flesh doesn't like constraints. I'm my own man. I want to do this my way. I want to save myself, in other words. Simplicity ought never be misconstrued as easy. The cost is very high and the gate is narrow that leads to life. While God saves by grace, there are absolute constraints. In a more practical sense, up here on the board, humility accepts whatever terms the sovereign God of the universe presents unto salvation. If the Savior says, repent and be saved by the grace and mercy of God, then it is precisely what a humble person will do. There's a humble person who truly believes they have no strength, no power to save themselves. Do they really care how the sovereign God of the universe picks them up, and picks them up out of that and delivers them? Do they really care how they're made alive in Christ? No. A humble person says, what do I do? What, what is it? What do you want from me, Lord? I'm here. I'm open. I'm ready. Whatever it is you want. You see? An arrogant person always comes with little disclaimers. You know, like when you read a contract and there's like tiny little letters that you like, that's an arrogant person. I'll accept your terms, but I will counter offer with my own. And they think they can negotiate their way through the gate. Like, you know, in all the movies, the, there's the, you know, the troll that comes out. Answer this riddle. <laughs> there's no riddles. This isn't complicated. God says, listen, I was gracious and merciful enough to become a man and die for you. 
Do you want my son or not? Do you want me as I stand here, Jesus Christ or not? Because there's no negotiating. I already did everything possible for you. And I made it simple, even. So humility accepts whatever terms the sovereign God of the universe presents unto salvation. However, as the Spirit's been pointing out so bountifully, there are lots of lies about the gospel of Jesus Christ out there. For example, here's one up here on the board. A lie, a big lie. God is so, quote, gracious and merciful, and I speak with perverted definitions. God is so gracious and merciful that he saves everyone, even those who believe in a different God than the one who became a man and died on his cross. Yeah, that's what's being taught from so-called Christian pulpits, even this morning. Most of the, these so-called megachurches are peddling lies. Awful, awful, terrible, awful lies. saying that you don't even have to believe in the Messiah. Making the Messiah a liar. And if God is a liar, we might as well just throw the Bible out. And that's when Satan goes, perfect. Gotcha. Now I can take you anywhere I want to take you. If I get you to denounce Christ as the Savior, I can take you anywhere. You We're still going to use his name as a punchline. We're still going to talk about God as if it's the same one. Now I can take you anywhere I want to take you. Those are the lies. So this is why we fight this good fight, my friends. We ought not accept such foul definitions in favor of biblical truth and plainly stated doctrine in His divinely inspired word. Some of you by now might be saying to yourselves, I don't know, when is this guy going to get off this, this train? Like, you know, part 23... The answer is technically never. I hate to disappoint you. But I beg you, please do not misinterpret my vigor with narrow-mindedness, as some have already done. As some have already done. I've told you in the past, I've lost friends over this, over teaching the gospel this way. Why? I, I think I've been accused of being narrow-minded. I'm fighting a particular battle, you see. It's the same one that Jesus fought with the Pharisees, with anybody that was arrogant, with anybody who said, I'm, I can shoehorn the narrow gate. That's the battle I'm fighting. I'm not fighting the battle. I'm not fighting, I'm not fighting lies against the guy who was beating his breast. We haven't talked about that guy for a while other than to broaden the distance between the two hearts. He comes up in Scripture as sort of our counterpoint to the arrogant person and the lies that we've been fighting on this side of the fence, so to speak. But you see, this is what happens when people who have... Um, I don't want to use a big word, but... Uh, Mm-hmm. they've already got a uh, predetermined, how about that? That's a better word. I had a different word, but how about they, they, who have predetermined that, I don't know, they don't want the truth. They don't want me of all people sharing the truth. This is already determined. And so what do you do? You misconstrue. And you start making accusations about well-intentioned men like myself who are fighting the good fight, who are just trying to be honest with integrity to this good book. And that's it, nothing more. So I don't want any of you, certainly, to misinterpret my vigor with narrow-mindedness to be clear, it is my, it's actually my broad-mindedness that allows me to see things so clearly. I'm able to see the big picture. 
So far be it for anyone hearing my voice to contend that this man doesn't understand grace, mercy, and love. As I've stated in the past, it takes a lot more love to remain in this saddle while the horse is trying to buck you off than it is to ride a tame little pony around in a parade of lies. It's a lot harder to ride this horse, trust me. And some of you, over the years, have kicked me in the face. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Hey, let me serve you. Let me lay down my life for you. Would you mind taking that knife out of my back, please? Do you mind, would you stop consorting with the enemy, please? I don't need any of your help. <laughs> and I'm talking about people in my congregation. Yeah, I see you. I know who you are. People are like, it's not me. Stop looking at me. Trust me. But you know what true love does? keeps pressing on. You know what Jesus would have done to the guy who punched him in the face and then spit on him and mocked him? If the guy had repented, he would have said the same thing he said to the thief on the cross. You're going to be with me in paradise. That's what true love looks like. You understand? So that's what true mercy, that's what true grace looks like. Doesn't mean I'm going to sit here and not tell you the truth about who you are. Because I just did. And some of you should be convicted. Because I just did, and that's what true love does. And that's in keeping with grace and mercy. Because that's what those things are. They're not accommodations for you. I'm not going to sit here and enable you and say, oh, keep on doing it. It's all good. Just punch me again. It's all good. It's just punch me again. It's all good. I don't want you to learn anything. I don't want to tell you that you're out of line. Am I having to become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Do you know what I'm saying? Everybody just wants to ride little ponies around in the parade. I'm talking about people behind pulpits. I am and will remain righteously indignant regarding attacks on my Lord's precious gospel. Up here on the board, as I've been teaching you, to pervert core gospel definitions is to do the work of the devil. John 10 one, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. The simple fact is that even a so-called, quote, uneducated, and I'm thinking of the 12 apostles, of course, because that's what they were called, even a so-called uneducated person can understand the gospel and read the Bible in peace. Remember 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Therefore, as we noted with the three parables in Luke 15, the coin, the sheep, the prodigal son, it makes perfect sense that Jesus' primary ministerial mission was to simply present the gospel, to seek and to save. And then he said, Now you all, I've trained you up, go out and do the same thing. That's your mission in life. No, it's not. It's to get my new Beamer. It's to get my new purse, my new haircut, my nails done, my new friend, my membership, my new dance lessons. Some of you are like, I wish you would. <laughs> you have a purpose. It's not for you. It's not to live for yourself. That's what humility is. And the sooner you realize that, the more blessed your life is going to be. That's why while these lessons seem tough, they're actually really loving, merciful, and gracious. Because the Spirit's trying to take you through this vessel from this place of self-centeredness where nothing but misery and anxiety and worry and all that kind of garbage exists to a place of freedom. Galatians 5.1, for it was freedom that Christ set you up free. So what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? I'll tell you what we're doing. 
You're the person with the big stick. If you won't drop it, let it go. Makes perfect sense that Jesus' primary, primary ministerial mission was to simply present the gospel. And as we noted particularly in Luke 15, he often highlighted God's mercy with the humble sinner who's willing to repent. So in reflection, I've got to probably end a little here, early here with my notes, which is fine. Because I'm just about out of time. Just reflect on this and see where the Spirit takes you. Is it fair to say that Jesus was disproportionately and I speak as a man. I'm speaking in fleshly terms even. Is it fair to say that Jesus was disproportionately focused on the gospel in his ministry? Yeah. What do you think he was doing? Is it fair to say that Jesus spent his precious time on earth seeking to save the lost, a.k.a. in the parables, the sheep, the coin, the prodigal son? Is it fair to say that? Is it fair to say that Jesus is our most perfect example of what it means to live the spiritual life, to lay down our lives for others? Is it fair to say that Jesus is also the perfect example, then, of true humility? I think so. Then, here's my question. And this is the one that haunts me. This is the one that I fight against so much in your presence. Why aren't all so-called Christian churches today teaching these things? Why are they not teaching these things? Why are they teaching that as time goes on, the narrow gate continues to widen to accommodate arrogant mankind? And why do they insist on calling such widening godly acts of grace, mercy, and love? Why do they insist on calling a lie an act of grace, mercy, and love? I'll tell you, this is what true evil looks like. Anyone who messes with the gospel is to be accursed. That is an extremely strong word in the Greek. Accursed. That is what true evil looks like. People who suppose that they can mess with the gospel, widen the gate, find a way over the side. That's true evil. Satan is a master of disguises, and so are his agents. Go quickly to Galatians 1.6. This is why Paul went to his grave concerned about attacks on the gospel. And this is why I'm fighting the same fight. This is not a novel concept. I'm not Pastor Ed the Wonderful. Well, I am a pretty swell guy, though, Right? Come on, people! Loosen up, loosen up. Almost over. <laughs> I don't want to be novel. Because you know what? If I'm novel, it's not right. Because as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So I've, taught, I've told you this. If you, ever, if, you ever, if you ever leave me or this ministry or God takes me out tomorrow, <laughs> right? Oh, whoa, wait, way too much laughter was going on there, right? If you ever come across a pastor who says, I've got, the, I've got new stuff for you, run, run like Forrest. Put on some Nike Cortez. Run. I'm serious. There's nothing, no, no, we're not looking for new stuff. We're looking for truth. And truth is ancient. It predates human history. I'm not interested in finding new stuff. I just want to get to the real stuff. Amen? But yet, this is what Paul fought, and this is what we fight. Galatians 1.6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we are, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That is the magnitude that we should walk away with this morning. That is how important it is to teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Not water it down, not tolerate it, not make accommodations for loved ones or your sensibilities or whatever you think is right or merciful or gracious or what have you, or loving especially. Not what you think those things are, what God thinks. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of gathering together to learn your word, Father. Thank you for setting us free, for the truth will make us free. This you've told us. Thank you for fulfilling all of your promises, and thank you for giving grace to the humble. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.